Welcome to More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. Today we are recording from Astoria, Queens, Bellingham, Washington, and Alexander, Virginia. Our guest is Philip Merrick. Philip, introduce yourself. Thank you, JD. Great to be here. So I am Philip Merrick, CEO and co-founder of PG Edge. Um, according to this, you are also a serial entrepreneur, a technologist, board member, and advisor. Talk to me a little bit. We'll have plenty of time for PG Edge, but talk to me a little bit about this serial entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe it has something to do with uh, an inability to uh, uh, work for somebody else, uh, something like that. Uh, but no, uh, more seriously, uh, I've uh, uh, had the great fortune to have uh, stumbled into entrepreneurship and uh, have, by last count, co-founded and or run uh, something like six or seven different startup companies over uh, the last 25 odd years. I started out as a software developer, uh, but uh, uh, after a while, kind of really got into the business side of technology. And uh, uh, here we are doing you know, what is now uh, the uh, uh, sixth or seventh company for me and uh, probably the fourth for uh, my uh, uh, co-founder, uh, and partner in crime, Dennis Lucia. All right. Well, hey, you know, we've talked in the past, and you mentioned one company that particularly stood out. Which which one of those was it that was your startup that was your successful exit? Uh, so I actually had several successful exits, uh, but there are two that are maybe worth mentioning. Uh, first was uh, actually uh, – uh, the first company I co-founded and ran, uh, a company called Web Methods, where we pioneered the idea of what today we'd call web services and web APIs. And uh, uh, after a rocky start, that actually wound up becoming quite a big business, 1,200 people, a couple hundred million in revenues. Uh, we took the company public. I ran it as a public company for uh, uh, about five years, uh, five years as a public company CEO, which uh, was an interesting experience. Uh, and then uh, actually, uh, the other company worth mentioning, uh, and it's probably one that you and uh, uh, folks in the Postgres world know, uh, Dennis and I co-founded uh, Enterprise DB, otherwise known as EDB, together, uh, along with uh, another friend of ours uh, back almost uh, 20 years ago. And you know, it's been great to see that EDB has now become you know, one of the largest uh, independent companies in the, uh, in the Postgres ecosystem. Well, independent would be a stretch based on their PE, I would think. But uh, I mean, they are <laughs> well, definitely—they're—they're <laughs> um, yeah. they're definitely a great contributor to the community. There's no arguing that. Um, but that kind of rolls us around to what you're doing now. I mean, anybody can see you're wearing the logo PG Edge. There we go. So, <laughs> so you know. Obviously, I know why Postgres. You know why Postgres. I think a lot of people know why Postgres. But why distributed Postgres? What is it? That, what is the problem you're solving for us with that? Yeah, and, and that's a fantastic question. So, uh, of course, we absolutely love Postgres, rock solid, uh, and uh, uh, extensible. And uh, and these days, uh, the the range of workloads that it can accommodate is. Uh, uh, is pretty mind blowing, uh, but when you think about the challenges of today's applications, they need to be always on, always available, 
and available to probably a, a global audience of users. Uh, and for that global audience of users, they need these applications need to be super responsive. And when you break down the challenges behind that, uh, you you have to contend with things like data latency, uh, ultra high availability, uh, having uh, capacity for things like zero downtime maintenance, and stock standard Postgres doesn't support those things. You need to have a multi-master distributed Postgres if you want to take on uh, those particular technical problems. So data latency, we run into data latency on many of the web apps that we use where we see that it's taking a long time to, to load in the data into, uh, into the pages as they're drawn. That's because the database is a single instance uh, in one place on the network. Probably uh, if it's in Amazon, US East one here in Northern Virginia. Uh, and for users that are some distance from that data center, uh, they're going to see much longer page load times than, than people would like. So if you really want to address that, you have to get copies of the database closer to where the users are connecting into the network. Uh, and so these kinds of challenges uh, are actually addressed in the NoSQL world with, with distributed databases uh, and uh, with some other databases as well. But as Dennis and I surveyed the market a little while ago, we realized that this was still a gap in the Postgres world and nobody was really attacking distributed Postgres in what we thought was a, a sensible and open fashion. Hence, PG Edge. Okay. Now, this is interesting. You know, a lot of people, there's a couple of problems that, I, they're not in our little outline here, but based on what you said uh, occurred to me. Um, obviously, if I'm in, well, I'm on the West Coast of the United States, and I'm trying to view a site that's in, say, South Africa or Australia, uh, you know, my latency might be, say, 200 milliseconds. And that's really not that bad, except that unless you're pipelining, right, it's it's 200 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds as you pull down these these batches of data. Um, but that that's something that's technologically relatively easy to solve, even with standard Postgres, right? You can just use good old-fashioned, you know, asynchronous uh, replication, and, and then your pools can be fast, but then it's your writes that will be slow depending on where you are geographically. Um, that's something technologically you're trying to resolve, right? Where that thus the edge, where you can write to any node on this global network, and it and it will all sync up. Would that be accurate? Uh, yeah, that that is accurate. So. So it is true that with with standard Postgres, uh, you know, you could have uh, geographically disparate read replicas, uh, but your writes are still going to be constrained. You're right. still going to have that single trip to to the database, uh, and also from a management perspective, it's you know it's kind of awkward to, you know, it's much easier to deal with this if you're doing it say within one cloud region across some availability zones. But going multi-region turns out to be uh, fairly cumbersome. Uh, and then there's the problem of uh, what about the right traffic? Well, as a database guy, uh, you know, I, I have a, a particular concern with the idea of asynchronous multi-master. It, I mean, conflict resolution is going to be a big problem there, uh, especially as you scale out, right? It, it, if we're dealing with two nodes, three nodes, it's one thing. But if you're dealing with 15 or 20, I'm curious how that's going to pan out. 
but I'm actually in more curious, how are we going to solve like the GDPR problem and the laws in regards to transferring data between Europe and the States or yeah. China and the States or whatever? Yeah. Well, let me first uh, tackle uh, what you, you mentioned uh, about uh, you know, the issues of, of multi-master databases and conflict resolution and so forth, because that's something that we put a, a lot of thought and a lot of work into. Uh, so, uh, uh, First of all, uh, if if you are going to do uh, asynchronous replication, uh, you are going to need to have uh, some method of detecting and addressing conflicts. Uh, and so within PG Edge, we uh, actually, uh, as part of it, a standard Postgres extension we've created called Spark. Uh, we do have uh, configurable conflict resolution uh, where you can say, uh, okay, these are the rules for how I want to handle conflicts when they occur. Now, the kind of applications that uh, our customers are typically addressing sort of lend themselves to some kind of like sort of geographic breakup of the workload where uh, you're probably not going to be seeing a whole ton of conflicts. If you if you are getting a lot of conflicts, like thousands and thousands and thousands per day, uh, you, know, you might want to think about uh uh, re-architecting the schema a little bit to uh, uh, to make the the workload more amenable to uh, uh, to uh, to uh, this kind of uh, uh, distributed uh, uh, setup. Uh, then uh, some other things that we've done uh, we have uh, you know, what's effectively a form of uh, uh, conflict-free uh, data types, uh, but but done in a very easy and accessible way to handle things like running sums. Uh, so uh, having uh, rules like, uh, you know, latest uh, commit timestamp wins uh, and one overwrites the other uh, when you've got a conflict, that doesn't work for things like aggregates and balances. Uh, you actually need to capture the, the deltas in both places or multiple places and uh, uh, make sure that each of the deltas actually get applied so that, uh, you know, in the classic canonical case of uh, uh, you know, ATM withdrawals on two different continents, uh, if I'm taking out $200, uh, but my wife's in Europe taking out $300, the correct answer is to deduct $500. Uh, so you've got to merge those two, uh, those two deltas. So, so that's another thing that we, we take care of. Now, in terms of number of nodes, uh, it is true that things start to get more complex and um, uh, require more management as the number of nodes uh, uh, increases, uh, but you probably don't want to be going into the double digits. In our testing and working with early customers, you know, we've been able to show that just having three to five strategically placed nodes around the global network uh, is enough to make a very substantial difference in latency for users uh, in different geographies. Uh, so then the second thing you mentioned, I don't know if you want to respond to that, but uh, uh, we can we can switch to talking about GDPR and, and data residency because I think that was of, of some interest. Yeah, I, I do want to get there. The, I was just going to say that, I, I, you know, when you were saying three to five, I was thinking about it. And you're really talking about, you know, West Coast, East Coast, Europe, Asia, and then maybe mm -hmm. something down south mm -hmm. um, on the upside down portion of the world. <laughs> and but then you, for the most part you've got it covered. I mean, 
in realistically because there's just outside of the oceans right there's just not that much difference between the nodes in terms of actual distance okay. uh, and and i think that you know over time i think we're going to see maybe not in your career or my career but i think the long running solution to a lot of this is that we're going to get rid of the pipe right it's all going to be light beamed into the sky and being which means you know 25 30 milliseconds tops globally um but i don't know that we'll get that far in our tours right? I mean, we already have starlink which is a good start um, but obviously they need competition uh, and then there's always the the logistics of you know filling the night sky kind of thing. I don't know if you've ever looked out and seen the Starlink constellations; they're pretty cool. Yes. Um, yeah. But the the GDPR that kind of problem because I, I think that's only going to get harder, right? As the United States kind of matures the way it handles the fact that you know the top companies in the world are outside of the NSA or the most violent. Uh, provocateurs in terms of privacy violation. Um, and Europe's already started to come down on that pretty hard. I would expect the United States to you know, follow suit. It usually does, just a little slower. How are you going to deal with those particular issues? Yeah, so uh, I did mention that data residency is one of the problems that you're going to have to solve with uh, a global application. So uh, that's something uh, that uh, because of the way we've architected PG Edge, it turns out uh, we've got a very elegant solution for. So, you know, just to review the problem, uh, you know, if you're looking at something like GDPR or some of the Indian regulations, other regulations around the world, or in some cases, just international customer preferences. I want to have my data here in my country, in my region, uh, which you find in Europe a lot, uh, uh, GDPR or not. Uh, you know, to to address that, you have to commit to making sure that the the data generated by citizens of a particular country or region, you know, that data stays in that locale and is not transmitted out of it. Uh, and uh, that can be pretty pretty tricky. I know at uh, one of the SaaS companies that I ran recently uh, in the email delivery space, uh, you know, the only way we were able to, you know, not having a distributed Postgres, uh, the only way we could uh, handle that was to stand up a completely separate application stack, put that in Dublin, uh, and it was completely disconnected from what we were doing in the rest of the world, but that's how we solved the problem. That's how a lot of people solve that problem. But if you want to have a truly global application, if you want to have things like uh, uh, you know roll-ups for reporting and so forth, uh, there's there's a better way of doing it with uh, a distributed solution like PG Edge, where you can be selective about what data you replicate. So uh, with PG Edge, replication is not an all or nothing thing. You're not necessarily going to do it with the whole database. In fact, mm -hmm. you, as part of configuring uh, PG Edge, you tell it which tables uh, actually get replicated uh, and you can have other controls as well. Uh, we can filter on rows, uh, but the main way of doing it is with tables, with partitions. Uh, and so you can say quite literally, uh, I have this global data that I want to be replicated globally, but then uh, these other tables here, that's local data. That's my customer PII. That's the orders 
that those customers generated and that can't go outside of of that particular uh, location. Uh, and so that winds up being a, a really elegant approach because you know, you're not having to stand up separate application stacks that don't talk to each other. Uh, you can keep uh, consolidated reporting in place uh, you know, to the extent that you're <laughs> aggregating data and, and not uh, uh, copying uh, uh, European PII over to the US, for instance. Uh, and you can get the advantages of having a, a globally managed application uh, uh, versus having these these islands, uh, and uh, and that's something that uh, we're already talking to a number of customers about about putting in place. So that's interesting to me. You know, not a lawyer here, uh, but I do know. Like, so we have this interesting quandary in that. You, you offer the ability to protect the data, which obviously you have to, otherwise you're not gonna be successful in that area. But it's gonna be up to the client to determine which data gets replicated. So there's it, it, there's a, a realm of discrepancy between, or potential discrepancy uh, between what they say can be replicated and what the government says they can be replicated, and even well-meaning companies, right? I mean, Manprompt has plenty of clients where we've had to go in and say, no, you can't actually do that because. And they're mm -hmm. like, wait, what do you mean? You know, we protected this over here, and we're like, yeah, but that's only, you know, that's 95% of it. This 5% of it needs to be in there too. Yeah. Um, is there any worry, uh, and maybe this is a naive question, but is there any worry of regulation coming down that says something like, okay, sure, it's the customer that picked the bad data to be replicated, but it's happening over PG Edge's infrastructure and network, and therefore there's a liability scope there. Yeah, so we don't believe we'd have liability. We're providing you know, a, a technology and a tool set uh, and then how the customer actually applies that, uh, that, you know, we're, we're not in the business of, of, uh, setting all that up for them. Uh, you know, we will certainly provide them support and advice, uh, but those decisions are ultimately, uh, with, with the customer. Uh, and, you know, in some situations we'll be working, you know, we already work with a number of, uh, uh, consulting partners in different parts of the world. Uh, and so, uh, so, you know, they might be providing that advice, in which case maybe their liability picture is a little different. Okay, fair enough. So, you, I mean, you're providing the, the, the car, you're not providing the method in which they use the car. That's up to them. Um, all right, so, you know, Edge, not just PG Edge, but Edge is kind of a marketing term. It's a buzzword. Are we running on the Edge? Do we have Edge apps, things like that? Um, how do you think the more, you know, Postgres is growing very quickly. I mean, although it's, well, actually, I don't, I don't think it's arguable. Postgres on its own is pretty boring, right? It, it's the, it, Postgres is the opportunity to make something interesting. It's not what's interesting in itself. Uh, so for example, PG Vector, Spock, um, for those who are my more loyal, dedicated listeners, Sloney, that's just a jab at yawn, um, <laughs> you know, those types of things. But as, 
as these newer, well, you got your time scale, you got PostGIS, which has been around forever. You got PG Vector, which is relatively new. Um, but what do you think, like, you know, the big buzzword now is AI that's not AI. It, it's, it's not. But And machine learning, which is just another marketing term for automated data analysis. Um, do you think that those types of new new to the common person, the lay person, all, all they're hearing now is AI, AI, AI. You know, you, you watch, I think it was the Apple event where they talk about all this AI. And none of it was, it's just now that's the buzzword. Uh, how do you think this is going to affect, say, the next five years with Postgres deployments, the type of data that we're going to be processing, and how to make that, you know, fundamentally useful and not evil? Yeah, I uh, think there are a couple of uh, ways to unpack that. One is, uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of data that's held in Postgres databases. And many of these new AI applications need access to that. So, you know, are you going to uh, uh, couple up chat GPT type uh, uh, conversational technology uh, with with agents that know how to go into Postgres databases. Well, that's probably already happening. People are already doing that uh, uh, somewhere. Uh, but uh, uh, more more generally, I think uh, there's opportunity for applications that you know, we haven't even thought of. Uh, so one of the things we're excited about is you, know, you mentioned PG Vector. The, the combination of PG Vector and PG Edge. Uh, could be pretty compelling for uh, applications uh, like in in fintech, uh, you know, fraud detection and things like that. We need to be doing uh, that uh, sort of similarity matching and pattern detection, uh, and you need to do it really fast. So you can do it out at the edge. Uh, you can use PG vector to get the vector embeddings uh, out to uh, out to uh, databases that are managed by PG Edge, and uh, and and have something that's that's really performant, really effective. Uh, yeah, that's just one example in in fintech. Uh, so so I think we're going to see an explosion of all kinds of applications, and we'll see Postgres sometimes front and center in that, uh, but more often than not, under the hood, serving <laughs> up the data that makes all of this possible. So this next question. Um... How can we empower developers to more easily plug Postgres into their applications? And I want to preface this question. Um, I deal with a lot of developers. Uh, in fact, I would argue that Command Prompt makes the majority of its money fixing developers' mistakes. That's because, and, and I believe that this is not because the developers are inherently bad, not at all. I believe it's because we empower developers to more easily plug Postgres into their whatever. Because it's no longer a thought process. It's a checkbox. Are you running MySQL, Postgres, MongoDB, whatever, right? And I'm running Postgres and I and I want to connect. And I don't even know what I'm doing. I, I just know that I'm developing the next biggest, greatest widget that's going to probably go bankrupt, but hopefully not within so I can get my five-year return. And I launch into Postgres, and then, you know, they do their MVP, their minimally viable product, they get some funding, and then they need to scale. 
and we go in and we're like, this, what in the world were you thinking? And mm-hmm. I know Yawn's run into this before. I, you know, there's, it, and I'm sure that any database person knows what I'm talking about. And the question, the reason I'm being so hard on this is that I talk to all these companies. We need to empower the developer. We need to make it easier for the developer. We need to make the tools for the developer. But they have completely forgotten. How about educating the developer? How about, okay, they're in Java. That's great. But they still need to understand the platform they're using. And just because they know how to code to JDBC and Hibernate doesn't mean they understand the platform that they're using. And then therefore, they're going to make these mistakes with the database itself. It doesn't matter what the database is, whether it's Postgres, Microsoft SQL, you know, legacy Oracle, whatever. Uh, but how do you feel about that? I mean, business-wise, the whole empower, make it easier for the developer. Aren't we forgetting large segments of a population that already know what they're doing when we, when we always say it that way? Well, I think, first of all, uh, if you look at the developer community, uh, there are an awful lot of developers out there uh, and not that many know Postgres to, to <laughs> any uh, great amount of, of detail. Um, uh, and so, you know, the developer community itself is enormous. You know, the, the number of developers who, who are familiar with Postgres is, is, is actually, in relative terms, quite quite tiny. And so we've got to find ways to grow that. And so I think to your point, you know, a lot more education is, is no doubt a good thing. Uh, but I think when we talk about empowering developers, uh, uh, there are things that, you know, there are directions that, that, uh, you know, various companies and, and, uh, groups of developers and open source projects are taking that I think are, are really, really promising. So, uh, the, the whole infrastructure and plumbing piece, that's not something that the average developer should have to deal with. It's like, well, okay, having to set up servers and get Postgres running on a server and all of that, uh, you know, being able to approach that from the point of view of, you know, having a serverless service where I don't have to worry about the details of where Postgres is actually running and what it's running on and what, you know, AWS EC2 instance size that happens to be running on, like all of that detail, that can be taken care of. Um, I do think that for non-trivial projects, it it is important that you have at least one architect or senior developer on the team who, who actually understands the fundamentals and and can point people in the right direction. But you know, in terms of you know getting code going. Uh, getting things working, uh, th- there's there's more work that can be done. So, you know, these directions with serverless, uh, you know, love some of the work that Neon is doing in that in that area, for instance. Um, uh, and I think uh, things like Postgres are, are great as well. We're, we're big fans <laughs> of Postgres. So, uh, you know, it does turn out a lot of transactional style applications, uh, uh, you know, really just need uh, some form of the CRUD matrix. So, you know, model that uh, and then go uh, generate that out of uh, Postgres. And and then your developers are just working with something that, you know, they already know how to do. And that's work with the REST API. Uh, uh, as uh, as somebody who helped pioneer web services, I'm uh, 
biased, but I'm a big fan of uh, <laughs> big fan of web APIs for uh, for everything. Uh, so uh, so I think that there are things that we can do, and it it shouldn't be the case that everybody who wants to be using Postgres in their application, or you know, everybody who's working on an application that uses Postgres, shouldn't have to be an in-depth Postgres expert. Well, I would agree with that. Uh, I mean, that would be like, you know, just because, I mean, like if you can convince your mother or sister or whatever to run Linux, right? They don't need to be a Linux expert to use it. Um, they just have to be capable of running a Windows-like interface because they all need to work the same anyway. But I, I think where I start to get a little bit flustered about it is if we, if we take a step back, and we say, okay, in the field, if I cut myself, let's say I'm out hiking or something, can I stitch myself up? Sure. Would I want to? No, but I certainly could. But would it be better if I went to someone who actually knew what they were doing to stitch myself up? Mm -hmm. Who actually was practiced, trained, educated, certified, insured, all that stuff? Um, and that's where, and, and this comes, goes all the way back to, you know, the beginning days of say Heroku. I see this, I, I hear it all the time. I hear the Heroku really changed, uh, the approachability of Postgres for developers. No, it didn't. Heroku made my life a pain in the ass by not doing it correctly for the developer, right? Because they made it so simple that it, I'll give you this. They exposed Postgres to a whole level and, and, and population of really talented people in terms of being web developers or developers writing to a web API. No argument, no question. But they never bothered to consider that the simpler you make it on this end, the more complicated you make it on this end, which is why Heroku is largely unused now. Uh, and companies like mine will always say, don't do it that way, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. You're gonna to have to have some database expertise, at least on contract, that's what we're here for. But if you truly wanna scale, you truly wanna do this or that, you wanna build it up and out, you need someone, like you said, who actually knows what they're doing. And so I, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I guess I'm a little bit concerned about simplifying versus dumbing down. They're two very different things. One is good and one is inherently a very bad thing, right? Right, right. Yeah, but I think there's a difference between uh, sort of having having the understanding uh, and and then uh, yeah, having to deal with like purely mechanical things that are tedious uh, and you know could be taken care of in some sort of you know, serverless offering or or you know managed cloud offering, you know. It, Great example uh, in some of the stuff that we've done uh, in uh, our PGH cloud offering. You know, one of the things we wanted to do was make it easy to stand up a cluster of databases across multiple cloud regions. And actually, one of the things we wanted to make sure was that uh, we would make it really easy to get the configuration correct and secure. Uh, because it's so easy to to uh sure you know not not configure things correctly uh in the cloud and and uh you know leave your databases wide open um uh and so 
we have software behind the scenes that you know, it'll, you know. First of all, you you lay out on a map where you want to have your your uh, cluster nodes, uh, and then you hit the magic do it button to go provision everything. And the amount of stuff that we're able to take care of behind the scenes, you know, configuring all of the EC2 instances, you know, getting the uh, uh, Postgres database installed onto each of them correctly, then setting up the security groups and the VPCs and, and all of that good stuff. You know, there's a, uh, a mind-numbing amount of detail in all of that, which it's great if a tool can just go take care of that for you. Now, sure. it doesn't mean that you should be absolved from having an understanding of what's actually happening, but you don't have to do that grunt work of, of setting everything up manually. No, and, and I would agree with that. I mean, from core Postgres perspective, there's a few things that seem like it should, uh, partitioning, for example, it's, it, I should be able to define rules for partitions and partitions get automatically created as things go on, right? I don't have to go in and check or have a monitoring script or anything like that. Vacuum's a great example of there should be an agent that sits there and watches what Vacuum is doing and adjusts based on machine learning various parameters for vacuum, whether it's column, table, or even system-wide to ensure that within certain thresholds it just works. Right, so I, I I do appreciate that perspective. I think it's more, you know, I mean, even to this day, I can take a phone call once every two months where someone says our application is slow. We have two billion records, and out of my mouth is, let me guess, you have it in one table, and they immediately like, well, yeah, right, and it's that type of thing to me. It's like, okay, look, you know you had a table. You knew it was going to grow by nature of design. Did it not consider to you to look at how do we deal with large sets of data in Postgres? Right? Just Google the term, and immediately it'll come back partitioning, right? It's that type of thing that I think uh, is a little bit, as someone who sits so deeply in the database side of things, is frustrating. Um. Now, we talked about the serial entrepreneur. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. Uh, we talked about the serial entrepreneur. You said six, seven companies. Um, you know, your first one, you started it with your wife, your first company. What was That's that right. experience? It, I, I work with my wife, so um, scotch to you, sir. Um, what, was, uh, what was that like for you? How did that change the dynamic? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> so uh, where to start with that? Uh, so uh, the the first thing I would say about working with your wife is, uh, you know, don't try this at home. Your mileage may vary. Uh, <laughs> I am not a lawyer. How many disclaimers can we come up with? I am not a yeah. lawyer. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, my wife and I feel very blessed that, uh, you know, our, our relationship ultimately was strengthened by working together and having this joint shared experience of starting this company and then taking it public. Uh, uh, there were some stresses and strains uh, that, uh, that came out of that. Uh, you know, the, you're, you're probably aware of the data, uh, you know, for companies that are started by a husband or a wife, uh, you know, the, the odds that A, the company's successful and B, the couple stays together 
pretty low. So yeah. that's why we feel blessed. We, <laughs> we, uh, we won on both of those counts. Uh, but, uh, you know, and at times it was just extraordinary. And, you know, and having your life partner be doing it with you, doing this great thing with you, uh, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of joy in that. Uh, but, uh, you know, then, you know, things like time, space, and motion, particularly once we started having kids, uh, that, that just became really, really tough. Uh, and, and ultimately, um, and, you know, at the time, sadly for my wife, my wife had to step back and, uh, uh I was CEO, she was head of marketing and, uh, uh, she had to step back to, uh, raise our kids and, and, uh, keep things together on the, uh, on the home front, uh, while, you know, still trying to stay as engaged professionally as, as she could. Uh, but, uh, uh, it was, yeah, overall, it was a great blessing for us. It worked for us, may not work for everybody. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, we're just very, very happy that, uh, we were able to do that together and, and have that together. Uh, you know, funny, funny story. Uh, one of the things we felt was really important was to be absolutely professional at work. And it's like, so, yeah, we, we knew that our colleagues, our, our staff members, you know, would, would not want to sort of be exposed to, to, to the, you know, the, the personal relationship that my <laughs> wife and I had. Um, uh, and so we just kept it all very uh, professional and, uh, and, and played it straight to the extent that uh, after we'd grown to the extent where we had, uh, uh, a head of human resources, uh, a new hire who'd been with us for maybe just a few weeks, very sheepishly went to the head of HR and said, I hate to say this, but I think there might be something going on between Karen and Philip. They're actually married. I've been for years. You know, you actually inadvertently brought something up that I was going to point out. Um, so you said you were the CEO and she was the head of marketing. If I were to give any advice um, to a couple trying to start a business together, it would be have different gifts. So yes. in, in, in our in command prompt scenario, uh, I am not the CEO. I am not the chief boss. I It's not my gift. I, I'm more of the, oh, you don't know how to swim? Push. And let's see if you can swim. <laughs> uh, Amanda is the chief executive officer. I am the president and the CTO, which plays to my benefits directly, which are vision and providing overall technological insight to the operational team that supports our clients. Uh, and that would be, in, in my mind, and, and that's probably one of the reasons you were probably successful as well, is that if you have separate gifts, you don't bash, as long as you accept what those gifts are, right? You're not sitting there going, this is how you market. You might say, what about this idea? And then she just looks at you and shakes her head, <laughs> you know, because you're a CEO and she's in marketing, right? And <laughs> I'm sure you've probably experienced that personally as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the fact that you had separate gifts allows you to be successful in that environment. Um, and, and a mutual respect, right? You know, just knowing that this isn't where you're talented. So be quiet. <laughs> you know? Um, so 
what do you think? You know, what did the, what did this company that you started? It was the Web Methods. Is that the one you started with your wife, or was it a different one? That was the company. Yeah. Okay. And why at the time? I mean, you and I have been doing this long enough to know that you know first financed or the last one there. Uh, what made Web Methods the the thing that it was at that time? What made it so successful? Uh, so we were the first to recognize that uh, these newfangled web protocols, HTTP, etc., and then uh, XML, uh, that they could be used for solving problems that had vexed uh, technologists for for decades. Uh, uh, so being able to use technologies that were being used just between the browser and the server between applications to solve the application to application communication problem. So we, we were one of the first to realize that you could use web protocols to do that. And so we had somewhat of a first mover advantage. Um, and uh, uh, it was enough to ultimately, it was pretty rocky for the first couple of years, but uh, that allowed us to to build a business on top of that. So, uh, you know, there's some amount of, uh, you know, good luck and good timing there. Uh, but uh, uh, one of the things I would say to entrepreneurs is, you know, really look for something that is different from what everybody else is doing. So uh, right now, you know, don't be the uh, <laughs> the uh, 10th uh, uh, AI startup trying to, revolutionize medicine or something uh uh you know look look for opportunities that are maybe a little bit obvious to you but you don't see anybody else doing them so and and i would agree with that although i do think there's more room in the postgres space just by nature of what it is if we look at what pg edge is doing it's a little bit of a holy grail um you know the only company well, not the only company, but a company of note that has successfully deployed multi-master, and they do it very differently than what we're talking about with Spock, uh, is Oracle, right? I mean, Microsoft SQL to a certain extent, but Oracle, I mean, that's who you think of. You think of Rack, right? Um, and although... But more importantly, Golden Gate. Uh, yes. Which, which is actually highly analogous to what we're doing with Spock because Golden Gate is logical asynchronous replication with conflict resolution. Yeah, but it, I mean, Golden Gate also has got CDC and it's got, I mean, it works. I mean, Golden Gate's where it works with Postgres, for example. Yeah. Right. Uh, whereas Spock, I mean, I mean, I guess technically through the use of FDWs or something like that, you can make, do something really weird and don't give Yawn any ideas. Um, the, <laughs> um, but the point I was actually making is, is actually to your guidance, right? Find something that is at least novel at a minimum, right? Uh, and there's nobody really in this space. I mean, even EDB with their big animal thing, they're not focusing on globally distributed data which is a pretty big thing right now. And I think it's kind of the way it's going. I mean, for example, my offsite backups are globally distributed through a company, right? I don't, 
it, and and there's a reason it's all encrypted and all that. But there's a reason for that. It's like if the United States disappears tomorrow, I still have my data in South Africa, right? And a lot of people say to themselves, well, that would never happen. I would suggest that those people are subject to the United States U.S. history uh, education system, which is lacking because, you know, this stuff happens all the time. Um, I kind of got off point there. But the point I was trying to make was is that with PG Edge, that is something you're addressing. You're, you're addressing something novel, um, you know, globally distributed shrinking latency a lot of people i mean that you hear that a lot now is how do i make the app go faster and mm-hmm. there's only so fast that light can go right which is why global distributed matters what is it i mean outside of this multi-master thing because it is it's kind of like the holy grail what is the thing that edge is going to pg edge is going to give us or at least hope to give us that we're not expecting was it what's the button the knob whatever the app i can write because of the hard work that you're engineering that we're not expecting? Oh, uh, yeah, that's, that's another great question. So, so I would say that, uh, uh, what, uh, what is possible and going to be possible with PG edge, uh, a range of applications beyond what we're thinking about today, where, uh, being able to knock down the latency problem, being able to, uh, you know, deal with, with data residency and, and have smart, uh, ways of replicating data around the globe. Uh, you know, we're, we're a tool provider fundamentally, uh, the great applications are going to come from people who, who develop applications, uh, on top of what we do. So. You know, can I predict what those are going to look like? No, I can't. But am I confident that there's going to be a whole bunch of things that we've just not thought of? Absolutely. Does PG Edge have like a, a traffic director? Like I'm coming from the state, so it automatically directs me over to a state node? Or is that something that would have to be developed? Uh, you're going to take care of that, uh, you know, on the customer side, uh, you know, through um, various means, you know, you know, DNS, you know, whatever you, yeah. So okay, yeah, we at least for now, uh, we wanted to sort of put that flexibility in the in the hands of the customer. No, and and that makes sense. I was just, you know, I could see over time, this would be over time, but you know, PG Edge 4.0 kind of thing, where you've gotten to the point where, due to geolocation of IPs and stuff, all it just knows where to go. You know, unless mm-hmm. you specifically tell it not to. Um, so you made three. Yeah, actually, there, there is something that we're already doing um, with uh, with platforms like Cloudflare, where uh, we've we've built a little bit of intelligence into our APIs, so that uh, uh, when you're accessing PG Edge from uh, Cloudflare workers, uh, you know you've got a bit of code, uh, you're running it as a Cloudflare worker. Uh, uh, that Cloudflare worker could run. Anywhere on the Cloudflare network, and they've got you know I don't know a couple of hundred points of presence mm-hmm. where it could run. Uh, so interesting problem. It's like yeah, yeah, if you want to solve the data latency problem uh, and you want to do it in conjunction with uh, a platform like Cloudflare Workers, then you need to have that worker connect to 
the closest database node, the closest PG Edge node. And so uh, our, our uh, cloud guys came up with some clever code that uh, uh, you know, actually starts looking at things like let and long uh, and you know, the things that we can get out of the, uh, the HTTP header uh, uh, for the Cloudflow worker request. It's like, okay, uh, well, apparently we're running at this let and long. Okay, what is the closest PG Edge node? And then we connect to that. Uh, so, so we're already doing, you know, just as you were talking about, it's like, well, actually, wait, <laughs> uh, when we're working with a platform like uh, Cloudflare Workers, we are doing some amount of traffic direction based on where that code is actually running uh, on on the Cloudflare network. All right. Well, we talked a lot about PG Edge, and we're, we're closing up on our time here. So there's a couple things that I wanted to get to. Um, the first one is, so Spock, which is the primary component for your multi-master system, which is based on BDR, is no longer open source. Now, I'm not here to pass judgment, do what you want with your business, but I'm curious how kind of the the thought process behind it, well, you know, why not just make it say GPL or something versus uh, I think it's a confluent or confluence license, something like that. Yeah, it's, a, it's a community license. It's actually uh, the very same license that confluent uses the confluent community license. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we would say it is open source. It's, it's open source, lowercase O, lowercase S, uh, you know, however you want to characterize that. Uh, a custom, any customer or anybody else for that matter can do anything they would like with that Spock code. And our license imposes no restriction on them. The one restriction we have is to say, if you go stand this up in the cloud as a competing service to what we offer, uh, well, we're we're not going to permit that under the terms of this license. And that's just the one restriction. Don't go field a competing service with us in the cloud. And if you look at uh, what a lot of uh, companies that otherwise would be called open source uh, are doing today, uh, that that is exactly the same model. It's the same model that Timescale is on and a whole bunch of other uh, companies as well. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, we would love to just make this completely open source, but uh, you know, boards and investors need to see some level of protection, and uh, we don't have to be particularly paranoid about the likes of the large cloud providers because they do have a history of having taken unrestricted open source products, standing them up with no value add, and then using it to compete with the company that actually uh, put that technology into the market in the first place. Yeah, no, I, like I said, no judgment, just trying to feel it out. I do know, although I, it's funny, interesting that you brought up timescale. To my knowledge, timescale is just Apache. They don't have any limitation on the code that they have released. Yeah, if you go have a look, uh, you, you'll see that uh, uh, there's, uh, I don't know exactly the terms that they're using, but uh, there's there's unrestricted timescale, and then there's you know some sort of enterprise version, and that's under... Uh, yes, that's what. true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. All right, so, and then, you know, the, the 
a lot of people don't know PGH. It's funny, you know, you came to me uh, via Dennis. Dennis and I have known each other. I, I didn't actually know you were a co-founder of EDB. Obviously, I knew Dennis was. Uh, and then there's what is Andy and Jim Wojcicki. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I knew Dennis and I know Yon. I've known them both for two decades. Um, but you tend to, it looks like with this, you, your current staff you've worked with in the past. I mean, there's a couple of your marketing folks that I've met. They've worked with, they worked with you in the past. Uh, obviously you've worked with Dennis in the past, which means you've worked with Yon in the past. How did this, how did the, how'd you get the band back together? (laughs) Well, the cool thing, it's not getting one band back together. It's actually getting several bands back together. Uh, and, uh, we're, we're just thrilled that we've been able to put this team together uh from you know a a bunch of great people that we've worked with in the past sometimes in uh as many as you know three different companies uh before pg edge uh so so it's it's i think allowed us to move a lot more quickly because you know, we didn't have to do that storming and norming stuff as a you know team figures out how to work together because we all you know we we knew each other and we knew we knew uh uh how we all like to work together uh so so i think that's been extraordinarily helpful for us in getting pg edge uh off the ground and launched and, and into the market in the way that we have uh uh but yeah you know, i think we're actually at the point where you know, we're, we're we're starting to reach the uh uh out of limits of uh of our networks and and actually that's a good thing because we're bringing in uh people who are you know new to us uh as well as new to the team and uh, uh so that's that's bringing in a diversity of thought and different ways of doing things uh on top of this this great base of uh, a bunch of people who've worked together in some cases for several decades so and this just popped in my head, um, but you know, with your traditional startup fund, is the is the plan? Are, are we doing a traditional exit, or are we doing an IPO, or what's the the three, five, ten for PG Edge? Is this your swan song? You know that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, uh, who knows? Uh, on the swan song. <laughs> uh, so, uh, look. Uh, in each of the companies that that I've been involved with, I've I've had a very simple mantra, like let's build a great business and a great company, and good things will come out of that. Whether that's you know a, a great strategic uh, M and A exit or maybe an IPO, right? But I've seen too many entrepreneurs like uh, you know literally do the the build to flip thing or, or just become very fixated on a particular kind of exit to a particular kind of company, or maybe even a, a specific company. It's like, well, what happens if that plan doesn't work out and that company doesn't acquire you? It's like, well, where are you, where are you going to be? Uh, whereas if you just focused on building a great company behind a, a great idea and a great market need, it's like, you know, good things are going to happen. Uh, so, so that's the philosophy uh, that, uh, that I have. Uh, I know Dennis shares that. And uh, look, what we want to do over the next one year, five years, 10 years is just make it easier for organizations to to deploy distributed databases, to solve these really pressing problems 
of you know, how do you manage and run a global application that has to be always on, always available and super responsive. So we just want to make distributed databases easier and more accessible. And uh, at the same time, you know, expand the, the Postgres ecosystem because, you know, as I said at the outset, we, we love Postgres. And uh, some of us have been involved with Postgres like you for, uh, for the better part of 25 years. Oh, yeah, 97. Uh, I even had some Ingress and original Postgres uh, experience before, long before PostgreSQL even came into existence. Uh, you said something interesting there, the idea of building a company to be acquired and then what happens if that company doesn't acquire you. Uh, I literally talked to you, know, you and I, Dennis, Jan, we're all of a certain decade of wisdom. Um and well, I've maybe. talked to, <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we like to feel that way. Uh, and I've, I've talked to a lot of younger entrepreneurs and I've literally had this conversation. We are building something for Amazon to acquire us. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, what kind of goal is that? Right. Don't get me wrong. If you get acquired, great. If, if someone came along, I mean, I'm not going to lie. If someone came to me and said, look, love what command prompts doing. I'll give you an exit package. I would strongly consider it. I've been doing it almost 30 years. Right. But that's not, that was never the goal. The goal was to create this stable, well-respected, profitable company. And that's what we've done. Um, it seems to me that there's been a switch, you know, when I was younger, when I was in my twenties and early thirties and people would talk about VC, you talked about your exit because that's kind of the nature of it, but it was always about building something interesting. It wasn't about capitalizing on investment to derive your highest acquisition target, right? It wasn't about that. It was about we're building something cool. And because that something cool happened, you either a were successful or were not. And sometimes you were ahead of your, you know, your time. I, I think there was a company I might have the name wrong, but I think it was called Peabody. Um, and it was back in the early 2000s. And what it did is what Grubhub or uh, Instacart, what those companies do now, they were just ahead of their time. They just, people wasn't, weren't going to just automatically have all their food delivered. Um, but do you think that there is a, a value in I'm, let me back up. I recently had a conversation with two privacy advocates. And the challenge of these privacy advocates is they're trying to get people to care and understand why privacy is important. And we have gotten to a point where many in society just don't care or don't understand why privacy is important. To the point where these two individuals, much to my depression, both agreed that education won't do any good on this matter. People are just apathetic to it. They don't care. They only superficially care that Google knows literally everything about you, right? It's only a superficial care. In our world, there's a lot of the same things when you're talking about building something. Is it worth the energy to seek out those young founders who show promise but understand that profit is the reward, not the goal? Yeah, you know, I think uh, we're 
you know, a year or two into a great reset. Uh, so the, uh, you know, the kind of uh, person who's founding a company today uh, is, is probably a little different from most of the people founding companies, you know, five, five years ago, uh, two years ago. Uh, so the, I think we underestimate the kind of warping effect uh, all this free money has, has had on people, particularly in the technology industry. So it sort of goes back to, you know, money effectively being free, like, like literally, you know, uh, the Fed pursuing a zero interest rate policy for a very long time, and we're not getting political about this, uh, you know, that, that forced lots and lots of money into riskier assets, which found its way into a lot more venture capital funds being founded and uh, existing ones growing to very large, unsustainable sizes, you know, it's like, how does a VC fund manage a billion dollars effectively? Um, mm -hmm. uh, so so uh, uh, we've got a, a big reset in the tech industry where I think things are just going back to basics. So, uh, you know, we're under no illusions here at PGA as to what we have to do. We have to hit certain milestones if, if we expect to attract further investment. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know what, uh, and that's the way that the VC industry used to operate, and it's going back to operating that way. Uh, and I think that's taken some of the younger folks a bit by surprise. Uh, but you know, th this is way the this is the way the tech industry operated for a long time until money effectively became free, and now it's not free, and you actually have to be disciplined. Well, I don't disagree with that. And this is something that's happened two or three times since 1999, right? Um, but even it through... Two or three times, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there, but it no, has please. happened two or three times. Uh, but yeah, the last time it, it happened in a meaningful way was 2008, 2009. Right. And, and that's 14 years ago. So... Yeah, you have to be into your thirties to have actually experienced that as a, as an adult. Uh, so, so I think that has a profound effect on how people are, are thinking about the current circumstances we're in. But I think back to your main point, uh, the, you you have to be do, you know if you're doing it today, given how hard uh, things like fundraising are, um, you have to be doing it. For reasons other than hey, I'm I'm going to get acquired by Amazon and get a lot of money, right? Right. No, I agree. In fact, before we got on this recording, uh, I was on the phone with a wealth manager. Not for me. It was more of an investigatory call. Uh, and we were at, we actually talked about how where we're at today with essentially expensive money. You have to really work for it now, especially if you're a startup. Um, we had 14, 15 years of relatively easy money, right? Ever since, like you said, 08, 09. Uh, and although 08, 09 was a reset, it, if you look historically, it's usually every seven-ish kind of years, something happens 
and adjusts. Maybe the market drops or whatever the case is so that people kind of reset their expectations. But like you just said, which is I think very important, is that if to actually have a concrete memory of what it was like to work for your money, quote unquote, you got to, I mean, realistically, it's not even your 30s. It's really your 40s, right? Because you were a teenager when it happened last time on the place. Yep. You know? All right. Well, hey, Philip, this has been fantastic. Is there anything that you would like to add before we close out? I would just like to say thank you. And this has been uh, a great deal of fun. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And with that, this has been More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. Thank you, Philip. I hope PG Edge is successful. Thank you, J.D.